welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, June 15th through Saturday the 17th feature Ricardo Muti and the orchestra joined by principal tuba Jean Picorni. The program includes Strauss Jr.'s Overture to Indigo and the Forty Thieves, Lalo Schifrin's Concerto for Tuba and Orchestra, and after intermission, Symphony No. 9, the Great C Major Symphony by Schubert. And here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Lalo Schifrin Concerto for Tuba and Orchestra, a work lasting about 15 minutes. Famous composers are often great movie fans, but few of them have written successful film scores. Igor Stravinsky lived in the shadow of Hollywood for the last 30 years of his life, yet he never saw his name on the big screen. He entertained offers to score Jane Eyre, The Song of Bernadette, and other projects for Paramount and Warner Brothers, but the one time he actually composed film music for The Commandos Strike at Dawn about the Nazi invasion of Norway, the studio rejected it outright. And L.A.'s other resident modernist at the time, Arnold Schoenberg, had to make due with writing the score for an imaginary movie, the so-called music to accompany a film scene. In 2003, Lalo Schifrin, who made his name writing for the movies, composed a fantasy for screenplay and orchestra for the Chicago Symphony. Not movie music in the traditional sense, it was meant to stand on its own on the brightly lit stage of the concert hall. Like Schoenberg's effort, it was inspired by the idea of an imaginary film, but in Schifrin's case, it was informed by a lifetime of writing the real thing and by an insider's understanding of the similarities between music and film, two art forms that never stand still. Schifrin has always been at home in the concert hall. His father, Luis, was concertmaster of the Philharmonic Orchestra of Buenos Aires at the Teatro Colón for three decades. At the age of six, Lalo, born Boris Claudio Schifrin, but called Lalo, a derivative of his middle name, began to study piano with Enrique Barenboim a few years before the Barenboim house boasted its own young resident piano student. Schifrin later explored music from many perspectives, first studying composition with Juan Carlos Paz, who had worked with Arnold Schoenberg in Vienna, and then, at Paz's urging, applying to the Paris Conservatory. In Paris, he studied with Ravel's disciple Charles Kirchlin, attended Olivier Messiaen's celebrated classes, and played jazz in nightclubs. He became good friends with Astor Piazzolla, whom he knew in both Buenos Aires and in Paris. After Schifrin returned to Argentina, where he formed his own big concert band, Dizzy Gillespie heard him play and asked him to become his pianist and arranger. Schifrin moved to the United States in 1958. Five years later, he was offered the chance to score his first Hollywood film, MGM's African adventure, Rhino. He and his wife moved to Los Angeles that autumn, and his music has been a fixture of the Hollywood scene ever since. He's written more than 100 scores for classic TV shows, The Man from Uncle, Mission Impossible, and hit movies, Bullet, Cool Hand Luke, Dirty Harry, Rush Hour, in the process winning five Grammy Awards, and receiving six Oscar nominations and four Emmy nominations, and earning a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In 2016, his Mission Impossible theme, the rare hit tune in 5-4 time, was inducted into the Grammy Award Hall of Fame.
Three years later, Schifrin was given an honorary Oscar, recognizing his unique musical style, compositional integrity, and influential contributions to the art of film scoring. Despite the success of his Hollywood career, Schifrin has never lost sight of his classical roots. I felt very comfortable in both idioms, he said in 2019. I studied so much classical music and I practiced so much jazz that the two came spontaneously. I never felt that there was any difference between the two. Good music is good music. As long ago as 1965, he wrote a double concerto for Yasha Heifetz and Gregor Piatigorsky. His career and his catalog have continued to incorporate both worlds ever since. He has conducted major symphony orchestras, recorded Saint-Saëns' Carnival of the Animals, worked with the three tenors, beginning with their first appearance at the 1990 World Cup Finals, and created an ongoing series of Jazz Meets the Symphony concerts and recordings. The list of his compositions includes not only the famous film and TV scores and jazz pieces such as Gillespiana, but major symphonies and concertos as well. In 2016, when Schifrin's new guitar concerto for Angel Romero was premiered at the Hollywood Bowl, he said he had given up writing for the movies despite frequent offers. But he has continued to compose for the concert hall, particularly for musicians whose mastery inspires him. As he explains in a note he wrote in 2018 before the premiere of his new tuba concerto, the entire score of the concerto was composed with Gene Bacorny in mind. Schiffen writes, In my early music curiosity, it came to my attention that the tuba was generally used as a resounding instrument to mark the strong bass that rhythmically helped the rhythm of marches and common popular music. In my inner ear, I heard a different quality after asking some virtuosi of the instrument to experiment with me in a melodic and linear way. For instance, one thing that caught my attention was that in the high register, the tuba is an extension of the French horn and can be very tender and expressive. This is why I decided to write the concerto for tuba and orchestra. In this composition, I emphasized the results of my discoveries as well as the technical virtuosity that can be achieved because there are two approaches to the instrument. The most common use is without valves. To tell the truth, I confess that I never knew historically when valves were added. The second and less common use is with valves, which added the possibility of speed and extension of expressive ideas. This is the approach I used to write this concerto. By a joyful coincidence, I met via telephone maestro Jean Picarni, who happens to be one of the best tuba players in the world. It is incredible how communications have improved in our time through electronic devices, allowing both of us to awaken our interest in this project. As a matter of fact, for a long time, we used only this form of contact. It was only recently that we met at Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles. He's the tuba player with the Chicago Symphony, and I took advantage of their concert tour to meet him personally. All of the positive vibrations I felt from him on the telephone were confirmed. Our personal meeting was a blind date for both of us, but he is very open and easy to communicate with. I feel that my reaction was mutual. The concerto is divided into three movements, and I decided to use a musical language that oscillates between Baroque, 20th century music, and American jazz. During our meeting, he said that some passages were very difficult, but he was working on them. 
It would have been easy for me to sacrifice some of my ideas, but his diligence made this unnecessary. After his return to Chicago, he never asked me for any changes. Words by Lalo Schifrin and program notes by Philip Huscher on the Lalo Schifrin Concerto for Tuba and Orchestra. And now on to the great C major, Symphony No. 9 by Schubert, a work lasting about 50 minutes. When Franz Schubert died at the age of 31, the legal inventory of his property listed three cloth dress coats, three frock coats, ten pair of trousers, nine waistcoats, one hat, five pairs of shoes, two pairs of boots, four shirts, nine neckerchiefs and pocket handkerchiefs, thirteen pair of socks, one sheet, two blankets, one mattress, one feather bed cover, and one counterpane bedspread. Apart from some old music besides, the report concluded, no belongings of the deceased are to be found. Some old music, as it turned out, referred to a few used music books and not to his manuscripts. Those were with his dear friend Franz von Schober, who later entrusted them to Schubert's brother, Ferdinand. No one, it appears, quite understood their value. In late 1829, Ferdinand sold countless songs, piano works, and chamber music to Diabelli and company, who took its time publishing them, leaving the symphonies, operas, and masses to sit untouched on his shelves at home. Finally, in 1835, he enlisted the help of Robert Schumann, then editor of the prestigious Neue Zeitschrift für Musik. The paper ran a list of Franz Schubert's larger posthumous works available for sale. There was little response. On New Year's Day, 1837, Robert Schumann found himself in Vienna and thought to go to the Röhring Cemetery to visit the graves of Schubert and Beethoven, whose stones were separated by only two others. On his way home, he remembered that Ferdinand still lived in Vienna and decided to pay him a visit. Here is Schumann's own famous account. He, Ferdinand, knew of me because of that veneration for his brother which I have so often publicly expressed. He told me and showed me many things. Finally, he allowed me to see those treasured compositions of Schubert's which he still possesses. The sight of this hoard of riches thrilled me with joy. Where to begin? Where to end? Among other things, he drew my attention to the scores of several symphonies, many of which have never as yet been heard, but were shelved as too heavy and turgid. There among the piles lay a heavy volume of 130 pages, dated March 1828 at the top of the first sheet. The manuscript, including the date and a number of corrections, is entirely in Schubert's hand, which often appears to have been flying as fast as his pen could go. The work, a symphony in C major, Schubert's last and greatest, had never been performed. Robert Schumann was a thoughtful, perceptive man and an unusually astute judge of music. He was among the very first to appreciate Schubert's instrumental writing, but it's difficult to know if even he at first understood the significance of his discovery. His well-known written account comes years later after the symphony's first performances, but on that first day of 1837 in Ferdinand's study in a Viennese suburb, he must have been simply dumbstruck. 
He knew a work of genius when he saw one, however, and he quickly sent it off to the director of the Gewandhaus Concerts in Leipzig, where Mendelssohn conducted the first performance on March 21, 1839. There, in Schumann's words, it was heard, understood, heard again, and joyously admired by almost everyone. The facts argue that it was hardly joyously admired, and that perhaps it was understood only by Schumann and Mendelssohn. In his boundless enthusiasm, Schumann fails to mention that it was extensively cut for the performance, but he is surely right in wondering how long it might have lain buried in dust and darkness if it weren't for his efforts. Still, it was slow to conquer. When just the first two movements were programmed in Vienna later that year, an aria from Lucia de Lemmermoor was wedged between them to soften the blow of so much serious music. Performances planned for Paris and London in the early 1840s were canceled after irate orchestra members refused to submit to its difficulties. The symphony reached London in 1856, but in odd installments, the first three movements were played one week and movements two through four the next. Eventually, though, Schubert's verdict reigned, and he was recognized not only for his fortuitous discovery, but for his sharp-sighted assessment. Schumann spoke famously of the symphony's heavenly length, the very quality many contemporary listeners found trying, trusting only Beethoven to stretch their patience. Schumann had an answer for that, too, insisting that Schubert never proposed to continue Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, but an indefatigable artist he continually drew from his own creative resources, like Beethoven, but in his own quite individual way. Schubert was forging ahead into music's dark unknown. Schumann demands our sympathies. All must recognize that it reveals to us something more than beautiful song, mere joy and sorrow, such as music has always expressed in a hundred ways. It leads us into regions which, to our best recollection, we had never before explored. The passage of time has helped audiences embrace both Schumann's enthusiasm and the extensiveness of Schubert's concept. Time and research also have put the work in its proper slot among Schubert's 998 compositions, the final count of Otto Erich Deutsch, whose indispensable catalog from 1950 assigns a D number to each work. And now we know something that even Deutsch didn't realize. This is the supposedly lost symphony of 1825, which Deutsch assigns number 849, sketched at Gmunden on a summer outing. Later, when Schubert wrote out the full score in fair copy, he dated the manuscript March 1828. To that, later generations added a subtitle, Great, to distinguish it from the shorter Sixth Symphony, also in C major, and Deutsch, a number 944. As for the music, many earlier writers, including Schumann and Donald Tovey, have written eloquently and at considerable, if not heavenly length, of this symphony's greatness. Today, the music more easily speaks for itself. Schubert's broad canvas is no longer thought oversized, and his peerless, ineffable way with the melody can carry the new listener through many difficulties. Schumann is particularly reassuring in this regard. The composer has mastered his tale, and in time, its connections will all become clear. The first movement begins with an andante of such weight and nobility that it's inadequately described as an introduction. 
That bold yet quiet opening horn call has a marked influence on many of the Allegro themes to come and then returns at the movement's end, loudly proclaiming its success. The entire Allegro reveals a sweeping rhythmic vitality unparalleled in Schubert's work. The slow movement sings of tragedy, which later raised its voice in Schubert's Winterreise song cycle and surfaces again and again in the music of his last years. Seldom has Schubert's fondness for shifting from the major to the minor mode carried such weight. Here, each hopeful thought is ultimately contradicted gently but decisively. There's a sublime moment when the horn, as if from the distance, quietly calls everything into question with the repeated tolling of a single note. And then later, Schubert, like Gretchen in one of his most famous songs, builds inexorably to a climax so wrenching that everything stops before sputtering back to life. The scherzo and its lovely trio midsection with their wealth of dance tunes remind us that Schubert would gladly improvise dance music for others while he, with his poor eyesight and unfortunate height, barely five feet, sat safely at the piano all night. Schubert launches his finale with the kind of energetic, fearless music that appears to charge onward with only an occasional push from the composer. But Schubert, like Mozart, is a master of deceptive simplicity, luring unsuspecting performers into countless pitfalls and allowing generations of listeners to cherish the image of the brilliant composer, all inspiration and no sweat. Program notes by Philip Husher on the Schubert Symphony No. 9, The Great. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. <laughs>